up, guys? It's John Nelson, and you are listening to the Starting Block Podcast. Guys, this is a show for complete athletic development. Our mission here, if you're new to the show, is to give you guys the tools to win, whether you're the athlete, the parent, or the coach. Now, if you're new to the show, I want to say welcome. We appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Here's kind of the breakdown of how our show operates because we are slightly unique. We're a little different than most shows out there. We actually have multiple shows within the show. So the first episode that you're going to hear from us on a biweekly basis is our Q&A. That's where myself and my co-host, Chris Scarborough. What's up, man? Good afternoon, guys. That is where Chris and I will take the questions you all submit to us. Chris, where can they submit those questions? Info at startingblockpodcast.com. Boom. You can submit your questions there. We don't mind if you submit them DM. We've talked about this before, but honestly, just uh, for organizational purposes, if you could just shoot them uh, to the info at startingblockpodcast.com, that'd be great. Helps us keep it organized. Um, so those questions, anything, performance, rehab, training, nutrition, anything that kind of falls in this gamut, guys, we will uh, we'll tackle it. So that's your Q&A. The second episode that you'll hear is a bi-weekly episode as well and that is our guest interview the guest interview is exactly what it sounds like it's going to be just like uh, every other you know podcast that's out there we're going to bring some colleagues on from across the country and uh you know actually across the world i should say as well and uh you know talk some shop you know they're going to share their stories of success what they do with their clients their patients their theories and like i've said before you know one of the objectives of the show here is to actually connect you guys with some of the industry leaders across the world, like, you know, I feel like a lot of shows like ours, you know, are all coach to coach or doctor to doctor. And, you know, we want to make this relatable to the athlete, the parent, and the coach. So, you know, if you're a coach, listen to this or an athlete, listen to this, like that's part of the objective here is now, you know, where to go. Like if you're not around where Chris and I are and, you know, Memphis or Alabama, like, you know where to go. And so, um, we're going to bring our guest on here in just a couple minutes. Um, that is, uh, that's clearly the episode that we got today. And then the final one is going to be our Friday Fire and Fact, and that's about 20 minutes of me giving you guided wisdom, or some might call it ranting, but I'm going to go with the guided wisdom route. And, uh, you know, it's going to be a little bit more related to business, mindset, things of that nature, maybe not necessarily just the, the, the exercise prescription, rehab training, that type of stuff. So remember, we don't put those episodes out every week. I'm only going to put it out if I got good stuff to say. So we're going to get back to those. It's been a minute since I've done one, but we'll bring them back. It's, um, it's taking a little time for John to build up a little bit of anger. So now we're starting yeah, to get in. I got, I got a lot of anger out in the first like 30 episodes we did. <laughs> and so, but like, it's starting to come back a little bit, you know, I, I got a few things that are getting ready to boil over. So um, they're coming back. <laughs> and uh, finally, the last thing I want to say is, you know, we do have a fee, and we ask you that you pay your dues. Um, guys, pay your dues, and please share the show. If you've got value out of this, if you learned something, if we connected you with a pretty badass guest like we're going to do today, and you got value out of it, guys, share the show, man. Leave us a review, share it, help spread the message. So um, that's all we got uh, for the housekeeping stuff. And uh, with no further ado, let's get to it. Today, we have Mr. Matt Boulay, what's up, man? How are you? I, I'm so happy to be here. Um, I prefer being in Alabama compared to Quebec, but uh, but this is going to do. Online's going to be okay. <laughs> hey, Doc, come down anytime. Love to have you. Shoot, yeah. I, I, it's brutal down here. Like the humidity is just off the charts. Like you just look outside and start sweating and like it's June one and it's only going to get worse. So I don't know. You may retract that statement, but if you do come down here, man, we'd love to have you. So you're welcome anytime. (laughs) But, uh, yeah. So for, for guys, those of you that uh, don't know who, um, Matt is, um, Matt is a, um, DO, an osteopathic doctor and also a posturologist, um, a great, great mind in our industry. And, uh, we're really stoked to have you, man. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. I'm happy to share the, uh, share the good news that I've been spreading with my buddy, Dan Fichter in the U S, uh, since 2000 and, uh, well, it's been three to four years now that I've been teaching with Dan uh, some of the functional neurology stuff and uh, got to meet a, a bunch of the people that uh, you guys are familiar with over the last few years that have been on your podcast. So it's, it's, it's pretty cool for me to be here at this point. Yeah. How did you connect with Dan? Like, how, how did y'all meet up? 
So uh, a really good friend of mine who's a strength coach in France, who basically uh, prides himself on getting to know the best people across the world, he helps me promote courses in Europe. He has since 2016. So um, he was like, listen, I've got this good friend of mine in the U.S., always takes time to answer my questions. He's, you know, in this for the right reasons, super curious. You should hook up with him, talk to him about the stuff that we're doing in Europe. And it was like, you know, we, we sat down for a, a, a video call uh, once and then the rest is history. We've trained, uh, we've trained close to 100 people at this point, um, some of it online, some of it at uh, his facility in Rochester. So, yeah, so it's been going really well. And, and Dan is forever curious. So him and I get along on that level and, and on so many other levels as well. But, yeah, curiosity, yeah. Yeah, Dan, Dan's a great dude. I mean, he, we, Chris and I have known Chris. You probably know Dan a little longer than I have, but yeah, Chris is. Yeah, I mean, Chris is. Uh, you know, we've Dan's come down to Alabama with us, and um, I hadn't had a chance to ever go up there, but we talked to him pretty frequently. He's been on the show. He's coming on again. Um, you know, it actually, Chris. I think it'd been a couple of years since he came down to when we came down to Birmingham with you, and then I ended up meeting Dan again at um, the track and uh, track at the original track and football consortium. Um, with Corfus and all those guys, and that was the first one. But uh, yeah, Dan's a great dude. So, wow. um, but hey, Matt. So tell tell everybody a little bit about uh, you know posturology, and we'll kind of get into some you know talking shop here. Um, for those of our listeners that aren't you know aware of the program and you know your principles behind it, just share a little bit about it. Yeah. So the best way to talk about posturology is to talk about what you guys know that comes the closest to posturology. Uh, which is basically functional neurology. So the way it was developed by Carrick, uh, I would say, geez, back in the 80s, was, you know, looking at how the brain could connect to muscle tissue and, and how well that could happen uh, by developing testing and exercises to reestablish connections that maybe weren't never that great in the first place. So all the while in Europe, there were people trying to get the same stuff done but working on it differently. And so uh, posturology's aim is basically to create uh, upright posture that is the most economical. Uh, so essentially our criteria for what's normal is if you look at static uh, posture, which some people don't even care to look at. I can go into that later, why it's important. But basically, if you look at static posture as a reflection of um, motor development, there should be no imbalances whatsoever. I'm talking sagittal plane, frontal plane, transverse plane. And that in and of itself is still super controversial when you speak to most professionals because they're, they assume, well, no one's perfect. And I'm like, I get it that no one's perfect. That's but, okay. We're then, controversial here. No worries. Yeah. <laughs> this is the right place for it. <laughs> yes, but, sir, it is. <laughs> But any imbalance is, is abnormal. So then it's a matter of, well, how many do we tolerate? And if, if you think about the body's different systems always trying to find homeostasis, it would make no freaking sense to think that, you know, every, every system in the body is looking for balance, but your shoulders can be off by three inches in the frontal plane. And that's normal because that's everyone's story. And so that's where they were really smart in Europe in the 80s with posturology is they developed the know-how on how to test and actually truly correct long-term those imbalances, which are static, but that actually feed into movement proficiency, right? Because it doesn't just, like, if it was just static, the results, no one would care. But, um, but static predetermines dynamic. And so, um, so that's where these guys come from in Europe. I learned posturology the first time in 2002. I understood close to nothing. I went back to it in 2007 after taking more conventional education. And so I've been practicing it full time now since 2007 as a DO. So I combine, you know, basically the posturology, the functional neurology I've learned from the States and in really a brain based model, which is not very conventional for an osteopath. Um, but so my approach is, I would say, exclusively brain based. It's been for 15 years. So let's let's take then what you, what you just said. OK, let's take that three inch you know, scat shoulder. That's below. Okay. I, I, again, I, I love to talk, talk in hypotheticals because we will tend to see that on a, on a regular basis. The dominant side is, it's again, like, like you just said, that's considered normal for the yeah. dominant side to be lower. You know, we learned that in therapy school years ago. 
Yeah. But what? Okay, so you, you mentioned dynamics. How? What are the most common things? If you see that posture, that particular you know shoulder hanging lower, whatever. What 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 do you see dynamically then with that person? What are the common things you might see dynamically with that person? The very very first thing you'll be able to assess is lack of um, active range of motion. I'm I'm more interested in active range of motion. I mean, if I test for pathology, I'll test passive, obviously, to look at soft tissue, joint capsule, whatever. But with, quite frankly, the people who come and see me come in for chronic. Uh, issues. So I'm really interested in active range of motion. And you'll see a deficit in most likely flexion, abduction, probably external rotation. So what that's going to transfer onto is you're going to have a hard time with specific lifts. And then you're going to go from, you know, like, you're, you're going to go Mike Boyle on people and be like, Oh, we don't do squats, because we're afraid of killing people. I'm going to go there. I know you guys are the right crowd for this. Uh, and I, I like Mike, I like everyone. But I'm just so fed up with these paradigms of we do this, we don't do that, as if the absolutes make sense. I mean, it's, it's right. So, um, so what I want to do for people is create more options. So if you want to prescribe an overhead barbell press behind the neck, for God's sakes, like if that's actually where your mind is going, I want you to be able to do that with your athletes. Like it, it would be normal that you can do that if you, you know, progressively, uh, progress, uh, over, overload progression, progression, like, so I don't see any exercises being problematic. I see people that have imbalances that can't complete certain tasks. But yeah, so you would have an active range of motion deficit. Um, so, you know, like the, the muscle imbalance that we commonly see, tight pec, uh, inhibited lat, uh, difficulty with extension. So as soon as, you, as, you, as soon as you have the technologies and the exercises to balance this out, um, you, you, you instantly have better motor control, more recruitment, and that actually enables you to get more strength, more power out of the tissues that you're connecting with. So that's, that's one example I can give you. That's pretty easy to understand. I want to, I want to attack the, the static posture imbalance real quick. You, you made the statement and said that, you know, it, having an imbalance is not normal from a static position. Yeah. And I agree with you, but I'm I want to argue just to, just for the hell of it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So one of the things that, you know, I'd, I'd never personally buy into is the one leg longer than the other in, I've been doing this 16 years now. And in 16 years, I've had one person, one whose femur was legitimately shorter. And that was done by one of the doctors we work with, right? So like you, I hear it all the time. Oh, you got one leg shorter than the other. You got to put a lift in you. But I don't feel like anybody ever takes into account. Uh, well, okay, so loss of parasympathetic inhibitory function will create increases in flexor tone, thus creating changes in that dynamic. And it's like nobody addresses that. But why can't you have any type of postural balance? Because let's use myself as an example. So I had a tumor taken off my spine when I was 18 at L2. About, I don't have a transverse process. I, who knows how much vertebrae I have left. And so naturally, that's going to create a postural imbalance. So, I mean, are we saying that I should be able to completely reset that? So I wouldn't go as far as to say that you'll mandatorily have an imbalance, even from the work that was done. I'll give you an example. Um, I've had people with acromial fractures where after they've healed, they tell me, listen, it's going to be perfectly uh, impossible to balance out my shoulders in the frontal, frontal plane because I had an acromial uh, fracture. Uh, and, and, and quite frankly, if you think about the fact that it's the muscles that create the imbalance in the alignment, as long as that tissue is still readily accessible, you can still create uh, balance. Now, visually, you might still feel when you look at things that one shoulder is lower than the other, but you'll actually create uh, even muscle tone, which I guess is really where the real discussion is. So yes, visually, sometimes things still look a bit out of place. Um, if let's say you've had a dominant, um, uh, let's say you're right-handed and you've been playing tennis your whole life and let's say you're really high level. So you've actually developed hypertrophy of the bones on that side that you just don't have on the left. So visually, you're always going to look somewhat asymmetrical. But is there a way to make muscle tone even on both sides? Absolutely. Uh, and that is the real ticket of where we're actually going with this. So proprioceptive efficiency that should be um, for, for gross motor tasks, that should be perfectly leveled. And yet, obviously, with fine motor tasks, that's a whole other thing where you're supposed to be very good with one side and very bad with the other. But 
being dominant for fine motor skills is not the reason why you would have an imbalance in the first place. So is it is it truly the muscles that are creating the postural distortion like you talk, or I guess they're the, the result of it, you know, but is it really the muscles or is it more like the fascia? So, um, um, so fascia is the type of thing that uh, most uh, everyone brings up. And at the end of the day, I don't think anyone really knows what the hell they're talking about when they bring up fascia because, <laughs> well, it's perfectly impossible to assess fascia per se, right? So to sure. give you an example, like as an osteopath, we're trained in fascial manipulation. The only bloody thing we freaking know is that when we put our hands on someone, we're touching the skin. And if we're told we're doing a fascia technique and something good happens, we really just can't prove that we're doing a fascia technique because there's just no way of proving that. All we know right. is that we were putting our hands on the skin and something positive happened. So we know for a fact that when muscles contract, they do uh, create forces on levers and bones move. And we do know that with posturology, we're targeting areas of the brain that connect with the motor system, uh, cerebellum, basal ganglia. I mean, basically those areas for sure connect to muscles. Do they connect to fascia? Maybe. But because we don't know, um, it's hard for us to think that that would be the number one reason why we're creating changes. Mind you, if you create upright posture that is um, really optimal over a long period of time, you are reestablishing the, the, the fascia because the, the fascia keeps everything together. But it's not as if it happens, I don't think so, miraculously when you just put your hands on someone over an hour and they stand up. And no matter what we called the technique we used, I, I, I don't know if we had an impact on fascia. I really don't. So that, that always throws me off because I, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think it's a very – you can't assess it like to a degree. Like you said, you're touching the skin. But okay, so how much of of the posturology, you know, work or evaluation or therapeutic, you know, approach is taking into account whether it's a actual postural that that's an issue, like a structural matter, or it's a result of a neurological deficiency? So let's just hypothetically say, you know, you've you've got an inhibited, you know, right part of the cerebellum, like. How how are you assessing whether or not it's true? Like, I'm left-handed. I muscle test people left-handed all day long, right? So, like, how do we know it's physical versus, hey, maybe, you know, just my right cerebellum is, you know, inhibited, and so left has taken over or something. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. It's by default. So, basically, if you haven't had an injury, uh, whether it's orthopedic, neurological, cerebrovascular, one has to assume that there is no pathology behind the issue that you have. So then, you know, there are two categories of issue. It's, it's either, again, it's either uh, pathological or it's functional. If you're looking at a functional disorder, then you're looking at connections that probably didn't take place the way they should. And I know in functional neurology in the States, it's a big tendency to try to target, is it right cerebellum? Is it, le is it left parietal lobe? And I, I've never been super comfortable with that because if you look at how the brain connects with the body and how the body connects with the brain, it's not so segmented that I think that unless there is pathology, which a lot of people in functional neurology work on people that are very sick, I think in those cases, it's easier for them to say, this is a left cerebellum patient. This is a right parietal lobe patient. Um, Dr. Melillo, for example, in, when he looks at neurobehavioral issues, is really mm -hmm. big on this is a left brain deficiency, this is a right yeah. brain deficiency. Dude, I have to say, like, I mean, they're all my mentors and I love these guys. I have a really tough time with the whole, let's look at which part of the brain is not functioning properly. If you assess primitive reflexes in the order in which they appear and then in the order in which they should integrate, you realize that you're basically assessing the entire brain at any given time. And, and not to say that some don't have a, a role in, in maybe some areas more than others, but essentially for me, it's so if you look at the alignment of someone and the right shoulder is lower, um, okay, so that would be a right brain deficit if we followed the functional neurology model. And if the right pelvis is lower, then we're truly on a right brain deficiency. But shit, if the left pelvis is lower, then all of a sudden that model doesn't work anymore. And on half of the people that I've been seeing for 15 years they have a contralateral tilt, right shoulder lower, for example, but left pelvis lower. So right there, that left-right brain model for me, I can't use it much. 
And then, for the same reasons, I can't really target one cerebellum over the other because I would have to target right cerebellum for the right shoulder, but then I would have to target left cerebellum for the left pelvis. So by addressing it from a, I guess you could say, more of a structural um, starting point, which is the posturology, but understanding that it's brain-based, we're still going to stimulate those sensory receptors that anyone else would, but not so much with trying to be so overly precise that we would say right cerebellum, left parietal lobe. We're going to be more global, at least initially, in how we stimulate the body. And I do believe we'll get faster results and the results will be longer, uh, actually will last over time, uh, mostly because of the technology that we use, um, which is more unknown in, in the U.S., um, but with the same mentality, with the, with the exact same philosophy as Carrick would have or anyone in FN for that matter. So, all right, you kind of answered one of my, my, actually my next question, you sort of answered it already with, with your, just that, that most recent response, but that was going to be, first of all, John and I work with a lot of, of pitchers. We, we tend to a lot of, well, at least a lot of throwing athletes. Um, the majority of my baseball players are pitchers, um, I have, you know, multi, you know, numerous multi-sport athletes. Um, so, I, I'm, I'm so, I'm going back to that, that right scapula, or, or let's just say we're talking about a right-handed person, right scapula, lower. Yep. So it's a two-part question. Number one, what other things do you tend to see? You've already mentioned the pelvis. You know, be, sometimes it's lower on one side, sometimes it's on the other. But what are the, some of the more common things do you see that kind of go along with that shoulder blade? Being, being out of position. But, but the second question is kind of going into those primitive reflexes because, first of all, a lot of our audience is not going to know what that is. I mean, they will have gotcha. heard the term, but they don't know what that is. And then secondly, how can you use those primitive reflexes to then treat some of the issues that we're looking at? Again, based on, you know, thinking in terms of our audience being, you know, younger athletes. 100%. So the, the best way to explain it then so that everyone's on board is that if you have a posture imbalance, the cause is uh, that you have primitive reflexes that are not integrated. So then what those are is that when you're a newborn, for example, your mouth will move automatically when there is pressure in your hands because your body feels that that might be your mom's breast and that you need to be breastfed to survive. So that's called the Babkin response. So we're basically born with these reflexes that um, happen to take place to keep us alive. Uh, and, and they are the first means of how muscles in our bodies are contracted. Um, most physical therapists uh, that are more conventional believe that in adulthood, we have integrated all of them. And so there's really no need to work on this if we're, let's say, a teenager or an adult, because they should be integrated by age one. Um, when we start testing them, testing them on adults, we realize that uh, basically most adults have not integrated all of them. A perfect example for pitching is, uh, let's say, yes, we're all in the same, we're all in the same boat until we start doing that type of work. And nothing's ever perfect, right? I do want to mention that you never fully integrate a primitive reflex. You inhibit it to some extent. Now, the more you inhibit it, the, 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 the better you function. But at any point in time, uh, it could reappear. It's called a frontal release. So if you have pathology or if you have a really big stress, if you're just overtrained, dude, if, if, if you're like in the gym, let's say five, six times a week and you're over 40, <laughs> I just raised my hand there. Uh, and you, you, <laughs> I did not. You, I am not a part yeah. of that conversation. Yeah. <laughs> I'm over 50. Yeah, yeah. I'm not part of that either. And if you think you're 20 and you figure you can still manage like a West Side barbell schedule because that's what, you know, that's where your heart is at, um, then your primitive reflexes will reappear because you're stressing your body too much. So, um, so any posture imbalance is by default primitive reflexes that are not well integrated. Let's talk about throwing. So let's say with the throwing hand, you uh, have more sensitivity in the skin of your hand uh, with the hand that you throw than the other one. Where could that come from? When you crawled, if you were crawling more with the right leg, you probably crawled more with the left hand in terms of getting and moving forward. 
What that meant is your right hand didn't get as much stimulation. Now, you still became right-handed because that was partly genetic. So you still became right-handed. You still throw with that right hand. But that right shoulder that wasn't utilized as much in infancy, let's say through crawling, you're born with your shoulder down and forward. If your shoulder in teenage years or adulthood is still down and forward, it just never developed like the other one. And and then the fact that you become right-handed because it's mostly genetic, you'll still become right-handed. You'll still become a pitcher because you were, you know, you, you were exposed to baseball and you thought it was pretty cool. So then what I would do is say, okay, well, we're not going to make you throw with the left hand because you're, you're right-handed and that's what you're meant to be. We're going to look at that imbalance in the shoulder and assume that, A, it's not normal to have an imbalance because you developed it between zero to two years of age. This has nothing to do with your sport. It's not because you're throwing. It's just that you're throwing and that's, you know, um, you're using a system that's imbalanced. So you'll suffer because of it, but it's not the activity that's causing the suffering. Um, so then we would re recalibrate posture and integrate primitive reflexes. So we use what's called the neural spike ball, which, uh, these actually look like COVID. <laughs> if you guys remember <laughs> yes. the, your TV screens for three freaking Except years. That's real. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Yeah, this this is actually, yeah, no, that's right. <laughs> this is more real than anything we saw over three years. Uh, oh, but the wow. neural spike ball, um, when you rub it on your, uh, on the, your hands, on your feet, for example, that's how we would integrate these uh, primitive reflexes. Now, what, what would happen is if we want to know if this works is we would do range of motion testing before. We, we would literally just have the person use, you know, the neurospike by, by uh, you know, clenching their hand on it for about a minute and we would retest range of motion. So, so we always know if what we're doing works because I'm pretty big on testing range of motion before and after any type of drill or activity and if the if, if the activity or the drill shuts the person down because it creates too much of a demand or too much stress we also know so we don't give that one we figure okay maybe maybe that's for later down the road um so that's it but primitive reflexes uh if they're not integrated that's the reason why you have a posture imbalance so the static and dynamic merge right off the bat it's never just static because that's just a it's just a reflection of the story really right the the fact that you said that excessive amounts of stress will cause primitives to return because you yeah. can't fully integrate them that I, i'm trying to process like that that just that kind of opened up a whole new world yeah right well, there. how how do you how would you monitor or, or assess or manage that i mean like a loss in range of motion or or, or what what about what pulse it's uh, a yeah. physiological response besides a range of motion so i mean Sorry, just because it goes right along with John's question. You know, would you could you do a range of motion, but also see a like a, a blood pressure slash? Sorry, <laughs> I hijacked your your, your yeah. question there, John. But yeah. you know, no, could you I, see more than one thing that would that would potentially shut that off or, or, or set that person back? Hundred um, percent. I've used clinically uh, heart rate variability as a means of testing. Um, you know, you, you basically just put monitors on and, and, and you get to see the response. I'm, I'm big into gadgets, but then I see too many people per day to be, you know, gadget happy all the time because it would slow me down too much in terms of the, the, the volume of people that I see. But, but that being said, yes, if you could monitor different health indexes, uh, you know, heart rate, for instance, is, is pretty good, uh, as well. Easy to test with monitors. And so, but, but more than anything, the reason why I really like active range of motion is that it's a direct reflection of proprioception. So basically, if your muscle spindle lost sensitivity, you're going to stiffen up. And that in and of itself for me is enough. Like, I don't feel like I need to see more. Now, we could test more complex movement patterns, but the issue I always have with that, and, and I've been down that route, like, I really like testing, like, I took FMS when Greg Cook was teaching it. Like that was in like 1932 and uh, <laughs> first course ever where Greco came to Montreal, there was like 15 or 20 of us. And that, that was like, uh, you know, 20 years ago or something. And I love the FMS testing. But then again, after you see like uh, a hurdle step, right, you get you get like 20 hypotheses for where that that could be breaking down from. Whereas if you assess hip extension or shoulder abduction, like it's it's either that it you gain degrees or you don't. So and and maybe it's because I'm an osteopath and I'm I'm 
you know, trained that way. But, but I've also gone more the strength coach way of looking at movement. And it's, it's good for Instagram. Like a lot of the students that we, we, um, that we teach, what they'll do in the gym is they'll do a pre and post. Let's say on a deadlift, there was a pelvic shift and then they have someone crawl and then they redo it and the shift is there no more. I'm like, yeah, that's really good shit for Instagram because that's the stuff that makes people go, okay, all you did was you made them crawl. And for me, it's so obvious that I'm like, we need to, we need to post that stuff. And people are telling me, yeah, you need to post it. It's not that obvious <laughs> for so many people, right? Because we're still thinking in terms of muscles that are tight and muscles that are weak. But then it's like, why is that even the case? Well, if you didn't integrate all your motor patterns in infancy, um, the, the leg that you've learned to crawl with the best on that side, the glute is working and the psoas is not tight. On the side where you didn't crawl as much, that glute is, you know, if you want to say inhibited or less accessible, and your psoas is tight. And you've had this literally forever. It's not because of the sports you're playing now. Like that, that's one of the big take-homes that I like to make sure people get is your sport is not the problem. Like CrossFit's not even the problem. You know, like I know we like the, the industry sometimes likes to blame CrossFit for everything. Uh, we've taken on here in, in Montreal a bunch of high-level CrossFit athletes, and like it's not like they brought their training level down. It's the contrary. But the more we balance them out, the more they can put themselves through that god-awful suffering that they like. Let's go through then, because I, 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 I love painting pictures, all right? I mean, pictures for our audience to see. So, All right, so let's take that right-handed person who yeah. you said maybe they put more weight on their left hand as they're learning to crawl. All right. Yeah. Okay. So now would you then have them start crawling and then maybe put more weight on that right hand? Is that, am I, am I getting the right picture here? It's the right idea. So basically there are 72 movements that we know of that we need to master between zero to 18 months of age. Like that's a universal fact. So then the truth is it, the testing becomes the movement patterns or the motor patterns. So yes, you literally get someone on the floor. Now I show them every movement, which is why when I come to work, I'm an osteopath, but I'm dressed in like, uh, you know, sweats. And because all I do every day is crawl and turn to one side and I grasp and like, because I figure I can tell you what I need you to do. But if I show you and we learn through imitation a whole lot, then it's going to be easier for you to reproduce. So I would show the client exactly how to crawl with the right leg, with the left leg, with the right. And then I get them on the floor. And if there's a discrepancy, I film it first off. So they believe me. Most of the time they'll feel something's off. But when they see it, they kind of go like, oh, shit, maybe that's why I suck at squatting. I'm like, maybe that's why you suck at everything. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Because if, if you don't crawl evenly with both legs and your whole life depended on how you were able to do that by like four and a half months of age, you've been compensating. And I understand and I know that there's this whole like, you know, like, yes, the body's great at compensating. It's a phenomenal machine. Yes, it is. But what if it could compensate less? And there's a limit to how it compensates before it starts breaking down. And in youngsters that play a high level of sports that are uh, high frequency of training, kids break down at 16 now. I mean, and, and maybe because Shoot, we they break down earlier like, than that, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're breaking down like generous. 12. <laughs> yeah. hundred percent, hundred percent. And, and quite frankly, often enough, it's hard to blame their long career at that point. Right. It's, it's often the fact and it's getting worse. So as you guys might know, the CDC last year um, made standing upright by 18 months of age the norm. It was 12 months of age for 7 million freaking years. But in 2020, and the decision was made before COVID, I asked a few people because I thought, oh, maybe with COVID they're seeing delays. And the decision was actually made. So, so basically shit was hitting the fan even before uh, COVID for kids' motor development. And when I spoke to my good friend who's a PhD in the topic, she's like, they changed the schedule for what's normal because parents were having too much anxiety. Not because it's yep. considered normal. It's just they, they, they didn't know what to say to parents anymore in pediatrics. So now if you figure that now standing upright by 18 months of age is normal, whereas it used to be a huge delay in development 
all the way like three years ago. And crawling is not even a milestone that the doctor will ask the patient about because it's not considered essential. Well, not much is essential, but if you're looking for performance and if you're looking for longevity in sports, uh, well, this is where, you know, guys like me come in and say, okay, well, let's look at how you crawled because it might not be essential, but neither is playing tennis or football. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, th- and that's where I wanted to, uh, I wanted to go. Like, I'm, I mean, I'm totally geeking out on all this stuff here, you know, cause I, mean, I, I do a lot of, you know, work with primitives. And so I want to geek out on it and, and you really like, you really blew my mind right there with the whole, it'll, it'll reset everything. So, but I, I'm going to keep that and I'll, I'll get back to you on that another day. But like for the, again, for the audience though. Okay. So we understand, you know, just clearly, you know, the benefits of, of posture as far as, you know, health, longevity, things like that. But let's relate it a little bit to performance now. So for the coach or the, you know, or the parent who doesn't really want to geek out on some of the, some of that, like we do, (laughs) like how does, how does that impact performance? So whenever you have an imbalance in your posture, you have two problems. You've got muscles that are too long and you've got muscles that are too short to put it simply. And that's usually how I teach it anyways. In either case, the muscles are not as easy to recruit. So you've lost, for us, you've lost sensitivity in your muscle spindle. In both cases, Mm -hmm. the muscle needs to be at its optimal length tension relationship for the muscle spindle to be the most sensitive, which means as an athlete, you feel your body in space and time independent of context. And that's what makes you great because you're reactive, you're proactive, you know where you're at, you know where other people are at. And that's really the true nature of sports. You can add speed, strength, and power to it, but at the very foundation of it all, it's the stuff I've just mentioned. Being able to feel your body independently of context, being able to spot what's going on outside of you, and doing something smart about it in the meantime. So as soon as we have an imbalance in our posture, we have a hard time. We might not know this, but we have a hard time actually just recruiting muscle. It slows down our reaction time. It, it makes us more prone to injury. And it also increases fatigue in muscles. So we need more rest. And on top of that, we don't heal and recuperate as fast from workouts or from um, uh, sport outings. So it, it's hard to say what it affects because it actually affects the physiology, like the biology of the body as a whole. Yes, mechanically, but it puts an extra burden on even your ability to recuperate. Um, and that might be the benefit that freaks people out the most is, yes, okay, so when things are starting to balance out, they feel great when they play sports, but they tell you, you know what? I used to think being sore the way I was sore was normal, and now I realize I was sore because I had a lot of imbalances. I'm not nearly as sore now. And if you look at their data, sometimes they're lifting more weights in less time, like more mm. poundage. So, so then you figure, okay, you know, like, yes, being sore, but how sore and for how long and how much is that related to your imbalances? Uh, it's, it's, it still shocks me to this day, actually, when I see, because here at the facility I'm at, I work with my buddy who's a trainer. I mean, we have data on everything. We use the Desmotech. We use the, the, the push device for the, the velocity. Um, we, we have a, a posture grid where we... Everything, everything is like calculated to a T. So we know if we're having an impact. And recuperation rate is maybe still the one thing to this day, 15 years later, that still like throws us like for... Uh, <laughs> that surprises us the most. So if it, that, now I realize I'm asking you something you're probably going to be guessing at. So, you know, I, I'm... I realized that ahead of time, but you said now, you know, you're seeing people break down at 16 or, you know, whatever we use that as an, as an example, clearly. And it's not the longevity of their career that created the problem. So is it somehow a lack of these primal move or primitive movement reflexes somewhere along the way that have created this issue? And if so, like, is it all of them or is it just some like big time, some of these, uh, some big time uh, uh, primary uh, reflexes, the, the primitive reflexes, are there certain ones that, that are, are like really critical and they're just haywire right now? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, primitive, ref- the answer is yes. Uh, what's changed in the last 50 years isn't the genome, It you know. What's changed in the last 50 years is how children are raised and it's how much movement experience they get from birth 
to even seven years old. I'm more interested in zero to two years old because I know that's where things actually wire the most. Um, after two years old, it's I'm not that interested because, quite frankly, things have already settled. The cards have been played. By two years old, the cards have been played, and that's independently of who you look at in neurology. It's There's a consensus there. So for bulk development, obviously fine motor skills develops later and after, you know, gross motor skills, but, but yes. Um, and so the primitive reflexes that manage the sagittal plane are the ones that need to be integrated first. And then the ones that manage frontal and transverse planes have to be integrated second, because that's the order in which they appear. And that's the order in which they were biologically designed to be integrated. Um, so there is something to be said about the fact that all exercises for primitive reflexes are good, but let's say I ask you to work on a gallant reflex, which is for control of the spine and side bending, and you have an integrated uh, tonic labyrinth reflex, which is for extension tone, you'll never integrate your gallant. Like it, it's not going to happen. So the exercise is good. It's just not the right exercise for that person at that time. Makes sense. So... Duh, I, you know, if you, Matt, if you keep seeing me looking back on my bookshelf, I've got a couple uh, primitive reflex books up there, um, and I can't see the name, but Dr. Bonnie wrote um, in the Symphony of Reflexes, and that's something that really resonated with me, was like reflexes, you know, like primitives are like a, a symphony orchestra. You know, it's like, you know, each one gradually develops leading way to the others. And, you know, if the flutes don't come in, something kind of takes over and just it's a compensation effect. And um, I don't know, that just tended to resonate with me. And um, without getting like too deep into the reflexes, like and I don't have research to support this, just kind of one of my opinions. It's like, Chris, you and I have talked about like the rate of which we've seen things like parse fractures and just, you know, excessive, you know, strain in the lumbar, just all these random right. little things that just weren't happening 15 years ago. Well, I kind of tend to see the spinal gallant reflex show up a lot with these types of people, you know, yeah. I don't know. Have you seen types of trends like that, Matt? So we know that with uh, scoliosis, we see more gallant reflexes. And I'm not going to say there's more scoliosis than there used to be. I have no idea. But that's a typical one. Um, whenever you find on someone um, um, pelvic rotation or, you know, the people that get their SI joint adjusted, like, chronically, and they seem to always need an SI adjustment, that's typically more like an amphibian reflex that's not integrated, causing the, the pelvis to rotate. Um, but then as soon as you would have like a plantar reflex, that's very immature. It, that's going to throw off everything from the ground up. So, um, so what, what happens is let's say you have a plantar reflex on your right foot. That's not integrated. It's going to force compensations that are muscular and mechanical, which can make it that you won't integrate a reflex in your hand. Uh, you know, so a babkin or so, which is where I like the posturology because, at the same time as we would work, and that's what we do with these exercises on primitive reflexes, by using technology to get the body balanced full time, the eye exercises to do so as well, it's so much faster to integrate them and we integrate them more deeply. So let's say for a gallant, let's say for a gallant, uh, progression of exercises, I would think, uh, is let's say we get them on the floor. I, I call this the fish. You get them on the floor and you have them side bent to the side, come back to neutral, side bent to the other side, typically the side where they, they don't have the gallant integrated is the side they're, gonna, they're not going to have the same range of motion. You work that out, and then you go on all four. But then, you know, once you get it done on all four, same type of side bending, now you've got a bit of abdominal control that comes into play. Um, you've got the awareness of, am I bending the elbows? Am I keeping them straight? Are my hips at 90 degrees? Right, so that, that, that whole sensory um, system is overloaded with, more kinesthetic information. Now, if it processes it well, you've integrated your gallant, but at another level of complexity. But that's not even where I stop. Then I get them standing, and then I have them go on one foot and then side bend the opposite side of the body. Now, if you can do that with motor control, you've integrated your gallant in standing, which is really where it has to happen. So you see, like from step one to step three, same reflex but progression of exercises that makes it that for me, it's never, so this is where I don't even test them, the primitive reflexes, because if I test a gallon the way we're classically taught, I have to put them in quadruped position. Let's say the test is negative. 
Does that mean I'll, so if the test is negative, then I never get to work on the person standing because that might be where it shows up. Um, so I'd rather go through exercises that work on motor control, knowing that doing that, I'm integrating reflexes and progressing the complexity of these, ex- what, what you guys call stacking in functional neurology. So basically stacking the, the complexity level of these exercises to integrate the reflexes, knowing that I'm never fully going to integrate it, but I just want to keep raising the threshold of what it would take to break that person down and make the reflex reappear. So if I can get them standing on a um, on a BOSU while doing the side bending, while I have them gaze to the left, sing a song and write a letter to their mom to say they're sorry for being a pain in the ass, then then I've got something. But they have to write the letter with their hand. It can't be on the right. iPad. But... The chat, it can't have chat GDP do it for them. No, 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 you can't. <laughs> <laughs> it has to be you. <laughs> Shit, man. This is awesome. Yeah. Uh, all right, all right. I know we got to get close to wrapping this up, but touch on touch on breathing a little bit. All right, and yeah. you know the eyes, and just touch on breathing, I guess. Yeah, I couldn't care less about breathing than I actually do. Uh, so I don't know if that's so much of a thing from um, like I, I, a bunch of people in the industry are really big believers in the fact that. So breathing, if you're going to do powerlifting, like that's how I train, like breathing is obviously a huge part of it. And you have to learn the, you know, Valsalva and, you know, are you going to wear the belt or you're not going to wear the, like all these things. So breathing when it comes, but, but breathing for posture, like if you think about breathing, it's an automatic process or at least a part of it is, thank God, right? Or else we'd have to think about breathing. It's just like standing upright. So what I'm trying to say is, let's say you look at the sagittal plane. And you look at someone in the sagittal plane and their thorax lines up really beautifully on their pelvis. Their head is well positioned. They're going to have an optimal relationship between the thoracic diaphragm, the cranial diaphragm, the pelvic diaphragm. They're going to breathe just fine is really what I'm trying to say. Whereas if you have at 74% of the population, if you assess them in the sagittal plane where their shoulders are in front of their pelvis and it's not because they sit too much because it was like that at two years old. So basically, let's say you have an anterior uh, scapular plane. Well, those people aren't going to breathe well, but even if they try, even if they do exercises for it, they just don't have the reciprocal uh, relationship between the thoracic and the pelvic diaphragm. So in terms of the pressures, they're screwed. They're screwed structurally, which leads to uh, autonomic dysfunction. Uh, Because yes, obviously the sympathetics will ramp up, and, and not even just when they train, just while they live normally because breathing happens so frequently, right? So again, and this is where like, it's the same thing with gait. Um, I, I've seen physical therapists tell their patients, okay, when you walk, just think about landing on the outside of your heel. And when I have these patients in my office, I'm like, did you ask your therapist to do that? Because I tell you right now, they'll do it for about three seconds. They'll think they're losing their mind. And they'll never suggest it again. So these, these automatisms in motor control, like breathing, walking, if we have the right prerequisites for them, which comes down to, you know, primitive reflexes that are integrated, all of these phenomenons should happen naturally and, and efficiently without us having to think. Uh, so, which is why, again, the whole, but, but like a whole session of learning how to breathe to calm down your nervous system, I'm, I'm cool with that. It's just, it's just not my interest in my practice, but... But like in yoga or Pilates, if they want to do breathing exercises to calm themselves down, I'm more like the lion type who's looking for a, a fight, you know? <laughs> so it's, it doesn't speak to me because I'm just looking to see, okay, so who, who can I argue with right now? <laughs> you know, like, hence all my posts on Instagram. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so, uh, but breathing, phenomenons in the body that are automatic should happen automatically well is i guess what i'm trying to say so if you need to work on these things there's probably a bigger picture that needs to be addressed very good yeah so i I got one last quick question and then i'll then i'll i know we need to wrap up but let's go back very quickly to that uh, gallant gallant reflex if someone's weak i could yes or no in an athletic environment that person might very well be much more inclined to a ACL tear. It could lead to that. It's hard for me to be super specific, but yes, because if they compensate with the lower extremity, 
because they can't connect with both sides of their trunk evenly. When a primitive reflex is still present, what that really means is that the brain hasn't learned to connect to a muscle tissue or to a chain of muscles, in this case, side bending muscles. So yes, so yes, it, it would it would force compensation on the lower extremity. Now, that being said, the likelihood is that that person might be more at risk for an ACL tear, 100%. But I'm going to add, they could be more at risk for absolutely any pathology or injury <laughs> right. in the lower extremity. ACL That's tear what, just being what one picture, of them. what yeah. I pictured. You know, I was like picturing somebody make a cut and, you know, ch- a change of direction in football. So anyway. Uh, sorry, sorry, John. I had to yeah. at least ask that question. No, no, you're good. I was actually going to apologize if we had some dead air there. I lost my feed for a second, but uh, it came back right as you were getting ready to ask that. So, no, that was great. Um, yeah, Matt, this, this has been awesome, bro. I, I really appreciate you coming on, man. I think we pissed a lot of people off today. Um, I think maybe we got some people to love us too. So, uh, it's a yep. win-win, you know, <laughs> a bit of both <laughs> <laughs> Matt, where, uh, where can guys, uh, where can people find you? So, uh, we are on Instagram. Let me just look at the, we just changed the name of the page. So I'm just going to make sure I actually tell you properly what it is because how, how amazing would it be if I don't give you the right information? Um, (laughs) is this filmed or is this just audio? Uh, This is audio and video. Okay. So, um, (laughs) thank God my hair was done. I'm really happy you just mentioned it. So it's, it's, uh, Institute, uh, without an E underscore. C-I-E-S-I-P. So um, we're, you're probably going to want to just print that in the uh, – write it down in the um, in the comments when you publish. Yeah, the, uh, I'll the hunt you down and, uh, and I'll, I'll just I'll, – I'll hunt you down and I'll tag it for everybody. I appreciate it. I'm just reading it right now thinking no one's going to find this thing. It's phenomenal. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tag you and everything. Man, uh, man, man this has been great, man. I, I really appreciate you taking the time and joining us. Um, this was awesome. Um, so – yeah, guys, uh, please, if you got value out of it, you know the deal. Pay your dues. Guys, that's the show. Chris, Matt, as a ple- it's been a pleasure. Hey, so long, guys. Yeah, it's been a pleasure as well.